0: Welcome to Straight Thinking, a GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples and physicist Dave Rogstad. On today's podcast, how does historic Christianity ground the laws of logic? Let's find out as Ken explores the topic. After all, Ken, they didn't just come out of thin air, right?
1: That's exactly right. Uh, the laws of logic are, are critical. Um, my old teacher, Ronald Nash, used to say that you cannot significantly think, speak, or act without the laws of logic being true and applicable. So, uh, Joe, what I'd like to do, I'm working on a manuscript with my colleague, Mark Perez, on uh, logic, learning, and uh, life of the mind. So, it's it's a book we're putting together, and you'll probably be editing it, so you'll help us out there. Um, but what I'd like to do in this program and in the next one, carry it over to two programs, is I want to introduce the laws of logic, and I want to I explain how uh, Western civilization has kind of thought about these laws, uh, then in this, then we'll also talk about how Christianity interacts with the laws of logic. I mean, after all, there are a lot of teachings about Christianity that seem to d- have deep mystery. And then in the second program, we'll kind of look at some of the contemporary ways in which people challenge these laws, and we'll talk about kind of a Christian and logical response. So that's kind of that's kind of the roadmap of where we're going. All right, sounds like a good
0: way to go. I'm sure uh, people will be learning as I look forward to myself, so
1: let's dive right in. Well, where I'd like to begin is with, with Aristotle. Aristotle is, I think, arguably in the top uh, five, top three, maybe maybe top two of the most influential philosophers to ever live. Uh, his dates three eighty four to three twenty two BC. So he lives, he lives about three or four hundred years before the coming of the person of Jesus Christ. Now here's what's here's what I find interesting about Aristotle. So so we're talking about twenty five hundred years ago, right? But the interesting thing is with Aristotle is almost anything Aristotle might say, even though he said it twenty five hundred years ago it's applicable today. How in the world could somebody live 2,500 years ago, and yet he speaks, and it still has enormous application? Well, that was Aristotle. He probably had only one person that would challenge him in terms of his influence in philosophy, and that, of course, would be his own teacher, Plato. Uh, And so today, what's interesting is in the ancient in the ancient church christians wondered and they debated about how does greek and roman philosophy relate to christianity we we in the past we've talked about tertullian and augustine and and they would look at greek philosophy and say okay how does greek philosophy relate to christian theology and tertullian was known for the statement that there can never be, there will never be any agreement between Athens and Jerusalem. Well, uh, Augustine kind of comes along and says, "Well, uh, you don't want to swallow Greek philosophy whole, but neither do you want to reject it whole. You want to, you want to kind of take parts of it and see if if it fits." Well, he, here's the here's the idea. Um, today, Plato and Aristotle are largely allies to Christianity. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they believed in truth. They believed in, in goodness. They believed in beauty. Um, they believed in God. And so while Greek philosophy and Christian theology have sometimes had uh, a difficult relationship, I think in the end, Uh, the ancient Greek thinkers Plato and Aristotle are seen more as allies. Now, Aristotle is well known for many things. Uh, He was the first great logician. He didn't invent the laws of logic, but he was really the first one to kind of systematize them and organize them. And so we know him as the father of logic, but he's also the father of rhetoric. He wrote a great book on uh, how to persuade people, and of course, uh, he used terms like ethos and pathos and logos. That is, if you want to persuade someone, you have to have credibility, ethos, but you also have to kind of reach down into their heart and persuade them that they should care. Well, that's pathos, and but you can't you can't ever really persuade anybody without logic, without logos. So here you have an interesting person, who kind of gives us the framework for thinking and how to persuade people, and of course at reasons to believe. Uh, we see our mission as apologetic in nature. We see reaching out to people with the gospel of Christ, uh, maybe helping people to realize there are obstacles that are not fundamentally uh, inconsistent with the faith. So we're in the persuasion business, and. Again, I I come back to Aristotle, and I just kind of um, am amazed by him. And uh, you,
2: um, isn't there a sense in which you could say that Aristotle is sort of representing the best you can get out of general revelation without special revelation?
1: That's that's a pretty good way of putting it, Dave. Uh, I I think that's right. I think in many respects. Um, You know, if you consider that all people are made in the image of God, all people are recipients of general revelation, all people have received common grace, we we should expect that the pagans are going to get certain things right. Now, they're also going to get things wrong. And uh, Plato and Aristotle really didn't have a strong view of sin. Uh, You know, they had other ideas that might conflict with our ideas concerning things like creation. But I think that that's a powerful way of putting it. And, you know, I I have often said, I think it's a mistake for Christians to think that they can't learn from non-Christians. I mean, (coughs) Gabe, I I think you have learned a lot from Einstein. I think as a physicist, you learned a lot from your professors there at, at Caltech. Um, many of them were non-Christians. Uh, but because all people are made in the image of God, and because there is this repository of knowledge we call general revelation, there are things that we can we can learn. It's, and it's, I, I,
2: I like that. In a sense, you could say it's it may you could argue that some of it's wrong or you could say that it's incomplete.
1: Yes, that's that's right. Yeah, you know because it's incomplete, some of it is uh, difficult to see how it can be it can be true, but they get they get a lot right. Now let me read a little bit from Aristotle because he talks about the three laws of logic. We'll talk about them a bit more later, the law of identity, uh, the law of non-contradiction, the law of excluded middle. But let me give you a couple statements from his book, the metaphysics, he makes a couple statements about the laws of logic, and I I want to explain them. The first one, he says, nothing, nothing can both be and not be at the same time and in the same respect. Nothing can both be and not be at the same time and in the same respect. Well, that's the law of non-contradiction. And and notice there, by saying nothing can both be and not be at the same time in the same respect, he's saying the laws of logic not only reflect our thinking about truth, but reality. So for Aristotle, the laws of logic gave us a picture of what is real as well as what is true. Now, here's another statement from the metaphysics. Uh, Aristotle says, opposite assertions cannot be true at the same time. Opposite assertions cannot be true at the same time. Well, that's a very critical point about the laws of logic. You can cast them in either a metaphysical way or in an epistemological way. What do I mean by that? You could talk about the laws in terms of reality, in terms of stuff, in in terms of ontology, being, or you can talk about the laws of logic in terms of truth. A a true statement cannot be both true and false at the same time and in the same way. So Aristotle is really the one who, he thinks these issues through. He's not the first one to think logically. Logic didn't start with Aristotle, but Aristotle was an incredible mind and he was able to kind of systematize these principles. And uh, I, I think that it's, it is proper that Christian thinkers would later come and say, hey, look, Aristotle is such a brilliant mind. Maybe we can use uh, his thinking as a means of kind of explaining the Christian faith. And of course, there I'm talking about someone like Thomas Aquinas, who would present a Christian Aristotelian synthesis, uh, if you will. Well, let me uh, let me go into a little more depth about these laws of logic. And again, they are technical, um, but it's important to kind of think through these ideas and kind of be exposed to these ideas. Um, and and here is how I I start the chapter that I have in my book. Um, I I kind of like the way this just introduces, and I think it might help our listeners, I say this, have you ever wondered what makes human thinking and speaking intelligible? Are there invisible, conceptual, universal, timeless, necessary, and self-evident rational principles that serve to underlie and order reality and thought? In the ancient Greek world, such a cosmic principle of intelligence or reason was referred to as the Logos and translated variously as speech, discourse, word, thought, idea, or argument. It is, of course, from this critical Greek term that we get the English word logic. Now, of course, I can't help but bring out the idea that uh, the fourth gospel In the New Testament, the Gospel of John, the prologue, John 1.1, mentions the Logos. Now, why in the world would John do that? Well, I I think that very first verse, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I think clearly John there is kind of echoing Genesis 1.1, in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. But the Greeks had the idea that the world was intelligible because there was this concept called the logos and uh, all human beings were kind of networked with this cosmic principle. And, and again, it, it could be thought of as speech or discourse or thought idea or argument. And so all people were, all people think of it this way. Here's my analogy for people in the 21st century. Think about a bunch of computers that are all networked together. The Greeks kind of thought all humanity, but maybe especially the Greeks, because the Greeks thought that uh, the the Greek culture was an exceptional culture. They were an exceptional nation. Um, I actually want to do a program in the future, Joe and Dave, on the idea of nations thinking they're exceptional. But the Greeks were kind of one of the early ones, not maybe the Chinese came before. You have these nations who, hey, we're we're unique, we're special. But think about that idea for a moment. In the 21st century, let's suppose you're all working at reasons to believe. Well, to work at reasons to believe, you have to have a RTB email, and you have to have access to all the RTB uh, interaction. Well, think of a bunch of people who are logged on to the computer. The ancient Greeks would say there is this cosmic principle, this intelligible principle. Uh, it's invisible. It's conceptual. It's universal. It's timeless. It's necessary. It's self. It is self-evident as a rational principle, and all of you are networked into it, and that's what makes you different than. The animals, and that's what makes you different than the machines.
2: Sounds like Google.
1: Well, Google thinks they're an exceptional people, right? Uh, they fit pretty well into that that kind of claim. I mean, after all, Dave, they claim they're gonna they're gonna solve death. I mean, that's that's no minor, uh, you know. Hey, if what's the statement? Uh, go big or go home. I, I, that's big. That is big. <laughs> well th- this is the idea that uh, all humanity is networked and it makes us different again uh, i i here i'm borrowing from mortimer adler mortimer adler who was uh, a specialist on aristotle after all uh, long before uh, mortimer adler ever became a christian he was a philosophical specialist on aristotle and thomas aquinas so he he was thinking about Christian ideas and Greek ideas for most of his life before he ever made a commitment to Christianity. But Adler used to say that it is this it is this gift of rationality that makes human beings different than the, than the, the animals. Adler says animals don't have conversations. They send signals to each other but they don't converse with one another. They don't have that kind of rational component. They're they're conscious. Uh, I think you could even talk about animals having souls within within an appropriate context, Uh, but, but animals can't carry on this kind of rational discussion and dialogue and animals don't seem to reflect about the big issues of life. Now, on the other hand, Adler would also say that this intellectual ability that human beings have, and, and, it, and from a Christian point of view, it's a lot more than just intellectual. But, but for right now, we'll we'll limit it to there. Uh, Adler would say this is also the reason why you're never going to have artificial intelligence, never going to have true artificial intelligence. Because machines cannot think the way humans think. Now, again, the Greek interpretation for that is because there is this logos, this principle that runs through reason, speech, rationality, and all human beings are networked into that environment. Uh, Now, of course, this this opens up a lot of questions like, uh, well, how do you explain this, this rational network? how do you explain something that's, that is, that is again, invisible, conceptual, universal, timeless, necessary, and self-evident? Well, where did it come from? Uh, Later, Christians are going to tie into that, and the Apostle John is going to say, uh, in the beginning was the Logos, uh, a later Christian thinker will say in the beginning was logic. Uh, and and Jesus, if you think about Jesus for a moment, um, you could say something like this that that Jesus is the speech of God, the discourse of God. He's the Word of God, the thought of God, the idea, the argument of God. <clears throat> When you look into the eyes of Jesus, when you hear him preach and teach, when you interact with him, you're encountering this, uh, this God that is invisible, the God of the burning bush of Moses. And uh, so that's kind of the back- backdrop for the way we think about these ideas. Now, let me pause for a moment. Joe and Dave, I want you to jump in there. This is a heady show. This is This is a cerebral show, and it's purposefully that way. Uh, In our book, Mark Perez and I are trying to craft it in such a way that it's as readable and as acceptable as possible. But there are some sections of the book that we just can't get by without kind of being a bit rigorous. But questions for you.
0: Uh, Yeah, uh, a question when you brought up the term networking. Um, and then you start talking about uh, animals as well and, and uh, the difference between humans and animals. Could you look at it this way? That is, somebody who is not a Christian might argue that uh, animals are remarkable, far more far more remarkable than humans in many ways. Uh, mm-hmm. In some cases, they can come out of the uh, birth canal and, and uh, uh, stand up right away, uh, they can fly great distances if they're birds. Uh, pretty pretty quickly, they can do some remarkable things that we can't do. Yeah. But as a way of distinguishing, could we say that a baby can can apply the laws of logic at some point? You know, it can exchange ideas with parents in a way that animals don't do. It's more instinct with an animal, but with a baby, are we networked in? Do we already have those? Uh, rational capacities. Uh, is that a way to look at
1: it? Yeah, very, very good, Joe. I, I, I want to say a couple things there. I I want to say that the exceptionalism of human beings is never intended to disrespect the animals. I mean, you're exactly right. There are things that the animals do far better than we do. I mean, you know, I, I think of a bear being able to smell uh, food uh, a mile or two away, uh, just this incredible uh, smelling ability, uh, or animals' ability to track and, and to, you know, birds flying detecting these systems, etc. Uh, the animal kingdom is is a remarkable kingdom, uh, and and by saying that humans are exceptional, it's it I think today we're especially. Sensitive to the idea. Well, are you dissing? Are you disrespecting animals? Are you are you engaging in speciesism? And and I would say no. I I, I would say that you know animals cannot read. They they don't they don't understand the concepts of of using letters that symbolize sounds that then. Uh, reflect ideas. That's not something they, they do. It's not something they can do. And, and yet uh, some people would say symbolism is is one of the most complicated ideas. And yet a good seven-year-old student has mastered that basic ability. So humans have these capacities to to reason, to reflect, to, to listen, uh, to speak. Uh, to read and to write, and the animals aren't capable of that. But but again, the animals have many capacities that, uh, you know, look at the speed in which they run, L- look, at, look at the elegance that they have. Uh, but I think here, the, the basic idea is, there's a difference in kind.
2: That was a, a question I was going to ask, which is, how do you distinguish between just degree and that, you know, we are just more advanced in certain aspects that are already in primitive form within the animals and what you call a question of kind.
1: Yeah, and what I think is really important here, Dave, is making that distinction between difference in degree and difference in kind is really a critique of evolution. Um, to say, for example, that that human beings—it's it, not that animal—it's it, not that humans just have a little bit more of what the apes have, or that humans have a little bit more of what the bipedal primates had. Um, humans have capacities that that shift in 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 terms of uh, a completely different category and and so humans uh you know it, it, in in some ways it may be that humans differ from animals in particular areas in degree but when it comes to rational capacity when it comes to language capacity when it comes to moral and spirituality those are those are not you know we we have a you know, we may have just a little bit more of a specific trait or quality to be a spiritual being or to be a moral being or or to be to be able to, to think about and to reflect about philosophical ideas. That seems to be a real category difference. And I think that human exceptionalism, which is known in biology, and there are secular uh, scientists who recognize that no, uh, human beings are not just difference in degree. They are they're they're not just smarter. They're quantitatively smarter. They move into a different category now. Of course, Dave, I'm going to say at that point, I'm thinking the Imago Day is at work here. Right,
2: but it it seems like the the way that you make this distinction is that the gap is very large. That that if the gap were not so large then it would be harder to make that argument would would you agree with that or i
1: I would agree with that Uh, and i and, and to go back to it for just a minute i think degree i think a difference in degree is that we just have more of what the animals have whereas i think kind would say no it's not more it's that we're able to do things that actually change the category. Mm. So so I think Darwin, for example, probably believed in a kind of incrementalism, that, that humans had just more of this, the animals have less of it. But I think the more we have reflected on it philosophically and scientifically, uh, to have a conversation, for example... Uh, To engage in the laws of logic or or to reflect about the meaning and purposes of life. In my view, that's not to disrespect the animals, but it is to recognize that human beings are not animals and human beings are not machines and machines are not humans. Hmm. I mean, it takes a whole lot of intellectual engineers and scientists and thinkers to develop, to make a machine intelligible like a computer or something of that nature but we are we are at that point creators right mm-hmm. okay joe question no all right let's then kind of delve into a, a bit more of the the laws of logic and and here I, i'm going to make a, a, a couple comments um let me talk a bit about the law of identity the law of identity says that A is a, a thing is what it is, right? I always hear that after World Series games or Super Bowls, you know, hey, you guys lost. Well, it is what it is, the law of identity. (laughs) Thinking, you know, these football players, they know something about logic, you know, (laughs) it it is what it is. Um, I'm, I'm being humorous there, right? I don't think, I don't think most football players necessarily know the law of identity, but they do know when, they, when they've been beaten on the, on the gridiron. Well, uh, A is A, the law of identity. Again, you can talk about that in terms of reality. Uh, you can talk You can talk metaphysically or ontologically. Metaphysics has to do with reality. Ontology has to do with being. So you can say whatever is, is, and whatever is not, is not. Now, you can also talk about it epistemologically. Epistemology has to do with truth. It has to do with knowledge. So if I said, if P is true, then P is true. If P is false, then P is false. So what's interesting about the law of identity is it tells us something not only about the nature of, of knowledge and truth, it tells us something about the nature of reality, that that a book Cannot be a non-book at the same time and in the same way that it's a book. And, and if that's not the case, you know, if, if if a cat cannot be a cloud and 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 a cat at the same time and in the same respect, if that's not true, then all of our intelligence begins to break down. Let, let, let me develop that a little bit further. What if, what if I said to the two of you, uh, please return the library book, please return the library books. Well, if we get rid of the law of identity, which means that a book is a book and not a non-book, if a book is a non-book, that then a book is a cloud, a book is a taco, a book is a computer, uh, a book is an ant, a book is, um, you know, a pencil. If I get rid of the law of identity, then then I can't think about a book because every every book is a non book, which yeah. means it's not a book. It's a lot of it. It is a lot of nonsense. Now, if I I can't I can't think about the book because the book is everything that's not a book. Hmm. And I can't I can't I can't uh, I can't say book because I don't know what a book is because a book is everything that's not a book, and you can't return it because language has stopped. Intelligibility has stopped. Hmm. So somebody like my old teacher, Ronald Nash, would say, you can't think, speak, or act in a significant way without relying on the laws of logic.
2: Now, metaphors, how do you fit metaphors into that?
1: Well, uh, in, in some respects, though, there there you're talking about analogical language. That there you're there you're using it in a in a unique way, right? Um, you know, an, an analogy is you're trying to compare the similarities that, that things have, but it's not a literal. It's it that's why we call it a metaphor. It is, it, it's a reflection of that. Now, let me talk a bit more about the law of non-contradiction. The law of non-contradiction I think is the granddaddy of all the laws. And it says, A cannot equal A and equal non-A. So you can say uh, metaphysically or ontologically, nothing can both be and not be at the same time and in the same way. Now, Dave, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to quantum mechanics. Mm and i'm going to say light can't be a wave and a particle at the same time in the exact same way and and i'm the way i'm going to come at it is i'm going to say actually under certain experimental conditions light acts like a wave under different experimental condition light acts like a particle but it's not it's not uh, a wave and a particle at the same time and in the same way. Not even quantum me- qu- even quantum mechanics must obey the law of non-contradiction, right. <laughs> and my my authority on that is Feynman. He says that very same thing that people get confused about these ideas. Now, the law of non-contradiction, if I lose that, then I've lost intelligibility. Hmm you know if if uh if jesus can be god incarnate and not be god incarnate then islam and christianity can both be tr- true mm. but that doesn't make a bit of sense mm. so these laws are are foundational uh, and and as we're going to talk about later, they, they don't apply to one culture. They apply to all cultures. They seem to have kind of a universal context. Now, let me say a bit about the law of excluded middle. The law of excluded middle kind of trades on the law of non-contradiction. Uh, if I were to use the two statements, Jesus is God incarnate, Christianity. Jesus is not God incarnate, Islam. Um the law of non-contradiction would say not both of those can be true. The law of excluded middle trading on the law of non-contradiction would say, and it's either or. They can't. Jesus can't be both God incarnate and not God incarnate at the same time in the same way, and he either is or he isn't. There's no middle ground. The middle has been excluded. Well, Well, again... What's critical about these laws is it really does seem that we assume them, and you know, one of one of the points that I make in the in the chapter, and I I want to touch upon it, uh, you know, just a little bit in terms of how we kind of how we kind of think about these principles, uh, and and here I'm going to read you a uh, uh, a quotation. I think I'm going to read you a quotation. Actually, I'm just going to describe. It appears that the laws of logic are ontologically real. That is, they define the ultimate aspects of reality. They tell us what can or cannot be. They're cognitively necessary. No coherent thinking is possible without their use. You have to you have to use them. And then third, they're irrefutable, they're attempted refutation presupposes their use in seeking to invalidate them. I remember I had a student at Cerritos College in one of my classes, and we were talking about the law of non-contradiction. And he said, Professor Samples, I want to give you some reasons why logic is invalid. <laughs> and I said, uh, I said, stop for a moment. You you actually want to tell, You want to give me reasons why you can't trust reason. You want to you want to use logic to beat up on logic uh, that that what's so powerful about that idea is that these laws you have to presuppose them even if you wanted to try to you wanted to try to invalidate them so they're self evident mm-hmm. they're 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 again ontologically real they're cognitively necessary They're they're irrefutable. Now, that, of course, has led to a very exalted view of these laws. Uh, Traditionally, people like Plato and Aristotle and the medieval Christian thinkers, they said, wow, uh, these laws of logic uh, are absolutely necessary. They are what I described earlier, um, invisible, conceptual, universal timeless necessary and self-evident rational principles now in our next program i want to i want to address some people who challenge that mm-hmm. say that is too exalted that you can't really prove that you really can't make that case but we'll hold on to that what i'd like to do now is is to shift to the question of how do the laws of logic then relate to God? If, if the laws of logic are, after all, um, invisible, conceptual, universal, timeless, necessary, self-evident, rational principles, that sounds like God. Hmm. So how do the laws of logic relate to God? That's where I want to go next. So let's let's talk a little bit uh, about this. Here, here I uh, here I want to raise the the question of uh, there is this there is in philosophy what is known as the Euthyphro challenge, uh, and, and it's typically the idea that uh, Socrates was faced with the objection: it, is something good because God wills it, or does God will it because it's good? And so this is kind of that question of, what is God's relationship to ethics? Is ethics something he just arbitrarily wills? You know, I mean, if God made up the Ten Commandments next week, could he change them? Mm -hmm. Is God's relationship to morality arbitrary? Or are moral principles above God? Does even God have to bend the knee to moral principles? Well, typically, the way Christian thinkers respond to that is to say no. Um, God's relationship to morality is not arbitrary, uh, nor is God's relationship to morality something that is a goalpost above him where even he has to fit to it. The consensus position is that morality flows from the very nature of God. God doesn't invent it. Uh nor is it outside of God as something he has to fulfill, but morality flows from the very character of God. God is love. God is justice. God God is equity. That's the very being of God. And so morality flows from his very nature. Well, now the question is, what about logic? Uh, Did God make up logic? It, and 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 by the way in in islam in the islamic religion they say that allah has the ca- capacity to reverse himself mm. he he could he could reveal something one day and then the next day he could just he could just counter it well i don't know about that uh that seems very very strange and and difficult but as we think about the laws of logic, did God just kind of, one day he was kind of thinking and he decided to invent the laws of logic? And, and then we ask, well, do the laws of logic kind of have an arbitrary nature? Or are the logic laws of logic outside of God where even God has to, he has to say, well, what did Aristotle say about the laws of logic? Well, the answer, of course, is 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 no. And 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 here I want to read from uh, Christian philosopher J.P. Moreland, who I'm very proud to say is a is a is a good friend. J.P. has always been encouraging to me. He's written really nice endorsements of many of my books. I feel privileged to know J.P. as a, as a Christian, as a as a friend. Here's how he reflects the Christian consensus about the laws of logic. He says, the basic laws of logic are neither arbitrary inventions of God, nor principles that exist completely outside of God's being. Obviously, the laws of logic are not like the laws of nature. God may violate the latter, say, suspend gravity, but he cannot violate the former. Those laws are rooted in God's own nature. So as we begin to think about these ideas, um, I, I think we could kind of I, I think we could speak popularly and say the laws of logic reflect the way God thinks. Mm-hmm. And since God is ultimate reality, the way God thinks shapes the very way the world is and the way truth is. So God created the world with namas, laws, and logic, right? Logos, logic. And he created us in his image, uh, and he networked us together. And and that's why human beings can do logic. That's why human beings have the capacity, Dave, to do calculus. That's why human beings have the capacity to to engage in in scientific uh, thinking. And what I what I think is very important here, apologetically, is when I go on Twitter and when I go on Facebook and I visit some of the secular. Uh, criticisms about God, often the comment that is presented is that is that logic and philosophy and science, uh, they show that the existence of God is not credible. Well, what I think here is uh, people are trying to use the laws of logic to say there is something fundamentally wrong with believing that there is an infinite, eternal, all-powerful God. But what Christians are saying is the very capacity to reason, to think, to do mathematics, to do logic, to do science, those realities, they flow from the very being of God himself.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and so Christians should never—Christians should never— engage in irrationality because they would be conflicting with the way god thinks Uh, and and so here we have you know some of these ideas being uh presented here now um uh i also want to i also want to talk a little bit about mystery um i want to talk about reason and mystery and this is what i want to say I think we know something about reason. Reason is that which is consistent with the laws of logic and rational inference. Um, That is, you're engaged in correct reasoning when you reason consistently with the laws of logic and the principles of argumentation. And Mark and I are working on this book, kind of developing some of those ideas. Now, I want to say a mystery, however, is a mystery is something that is true, and and in a Christian sense, it's revealed by God. And while it's not inconsistent with reason, reason cannot exhaust it. Uh, something is mysterious, not because it does damage to reason but because we can't totally exhaustively comprehend it and of course you know here i'm here i'm reflecting some of these great truths like the trinity like the incarnation like the atonement like the resurrection uh, i don't think there's anything about the trinity the incarnation the atonement or the resurrection that is inconsistent with reason but it eludes our capacity to totally understand how god could be one in being but three in personhood or how a single uh how jesus could be a single person and have both a divine and human nature and and of course what's what's very important there is i think to to make a couple points christianity is not irrational we, we We believe in God and we believe in Christ and we believe in the revelation we're given in the Bible, and we believe that those ideas and concepts can be described logically. That is in a way that's consistent with reason. But we also realize that God is infinite and eternal, and we're temporal and finite. So we're never going to be able to totally understand the Trinity. I I remember my wife. She said to me one day, "said Honey, I." I, I don't understand the Trinity. And I said, well, neither do I. <laughs> um, I can state it in a way that's meaningful. And Dave, I can use metaphors that I think can be helpful in understanding it. But but none of us totally get the Trinity. Now, I, I, I want to make a point here apologetically that some people might, might differ with me on. Um, let's talk about, Another mystery with regard to Christianity, and, and that is how, uh, how do we think about the human will and God's sovereignty? Uh, how, how do we think about human responsibility, freedom of the will on one hand, and the sovereignty of God on the other? How, you know, the sovereignty of God, that, that God is in control of all things. Uh, freedom the idea that I can make choices and they're real choices and I bear real responsibilities well how do you work through those they, they seem to be at odds with one another you know if God is sovereign then it doesn't seem that we're free if we're free it doesn't seem that God is sovereign well uh, there are proposals for way models if you will Dave uh, you know to, to speak in a scientific way I can give you a model one model is, is a complementary way of thinking that uh, there is a way to try to structure the idea of sovereignty and freedom as being compatible or or you can have molinism right uh Louis de molina middle knowledge well here's a point that i i'm going to make that others might disagree with i don't think any of these are really explanations I think they're models. I I don't think anybody really has solved the challenge of human volition and God's sovereignty. I think we can offer models of explanation. And some of the models, in my opinion, are better than other models. And some people like the models I like, and other people don't like the models I like. But I, I don't think that anybody has explained this. I think we are offering ways of thinking about it that will show you that, hey, this could still be true, even though it's very challenging to understand how people can have freedom and God be sovereign, uh, there is a way of kind of looking at it that could serve as, as a good model. I guess the point I'm underscoring there is sometimes apologists can overstate their job. Um, we're never going to be able to eg- exhaustively understand God as God understands Himself.
2: We have a uh, terminology at uh in the scientific realm where we say that a person has an, an inflated view of their understanding.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a Uh, That sounds like an emotive definition there, but uh, I like that. Uh, uh, And of course, uh, you know, isn't that part of the challenge um, in presenting the gospel to other people, engaging in evangelism or making an apologetic case for Christianity? Um, You know, you want... like all apologists, I certainly want to make Christianity sound as if it's reasonable. It's, you know, it it's not blind faith. it it, it is reasonable faith. Um, and and yet it is possible to lose sight of the fact that the Trinity, the Incarnation, the atonement, and the resurrection, while they can be presented in a very reasonable way, and while they are consistent with reason, Uh, we're never going to comprehend all of these things. There's something about God where he eludes us. He's in a different category. And, uh, you know, to be an apologist, I think you have to know something about logic. You have to know something about reason and argumentation. Hopefully, you know something about rhetoric. And maybe even more importantly, you know something about scripture. Um, But I, I think it's important to realize that you also have to approach these things in a very humble way. Um, And and so you're not going to make an argument that's going to totally explain the Trinity because God is an infinite and eternal being and we're finite and we're temporal creatures. And and therefore, you know, to be a Christian in this sense is very different than being a non-Christian To approach God, you have to approach God on his terms, not on your terms. And it takes humility. And and it it also takes a moral recognition that, wow, um, I'm not just talking about a being that may exist outside of space and time, maybe even an intelligent being, but I'm also interacting with a moral being, a being that's morally perfect and uh, my behavior, the history of my behavior, does not comport with, you know, his standards of conduct. So when we talk about Christianity, we can talk about it from a rational point of view, and um, you know, I've tried to commit my apologetic uh, career, my apologetic vocation, to trying to show that his historic christianity is consistent with reason but i don't want to make the mistake of of, of saying that there isn't real mystery and uh, you know we should, should we should work hard at trying to understand everything we can understand but god is after all god and if you and i could understand him he wouldn't be much of a god mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, let me give you a couple more quotations here of, about kind of rounding out this Christian view. Here's Peter Kraft. Um I like to say Peter Kreeft is kind of the Catholic C.S. Lewis, uh, which is high praise, uh, because I think Lewis was uh, an amazing person. But here's what Kreeft says. He says that logic is not made, but discovered. And there is only one logic he goes on to say, like mathematics, logic is objective, universal, and unchangeable in its basic laws or principles. Dave, I find it very interesting. I, I, I listen to some of the great mathematical thinkers, and I'll, I'll watch interviews with them on YouTube. Um, uh, who, who was the close associate of Stephen Hawking that was the mathematician?
2: Um, well, there's uh, Roger Penrose.
1: Penrose is the one I'm thinking of. Penrose was asked the question is, is math, is mathematics invented or discovered? And he said, discovered. Uh, I saw another interview uh, with another physicist. Um, I'm trying to remember all their names now, uh, Max Techmark. And he said, math is discovered. A lot of mathematicians, it seems, don't want to commit a hasty generalization. Sure, there are mathematicians who think no numbers are are just kind of, uh, you know, constructs. But math, Dave, a lot of leading scientific thinkers think mathematics is discovered. I think if you commit yourself to that, you're on the way to thinking about God. Because to say that mathematics is discovers, it means it's outside of you. It has an independent existence of its own. I think to say that logic is objective, that there's only one logic and that it's discovered leads you down that path, I think of theism. Mm-hmm. Now to go now to go a little bit further here,, um, Uh, Here's William Lane Craig, one one of the great Christian thinkers today. Craig says this about the rational nature of God. He says, I do believe that just as God is the basis of necessary moral truths, so he is the basis for the laws of logic, like the rules of inference. The laws of logic merely describe the way God thinks. As the supremely rational being, God's thinking is always logical the rules codify how he thinks you know that that's very provocative uh, in my church i attend an anglican church and we we have prayers through the psalms where the the pastor or the vicar will read part of the statement from the psalm and then the congregation will read the rest of the psalm and often we'll start with the 10 commandments and i think to myself well The Ten Commandments weren't created arbitrarily by God, nor do they stand outside of God. The the moral principles reflected in the Ten Commandments reflect God's moral thinking himself. Well, I could say something about logic, that the laws of logic, which make uh, intelligibility in the world possible, they flow out of the mind of God. and. Again, this this is uh, f- from a Christian theistic point of view. I think to deny God's existence, you immediately run into uh, roadblocks. You have a hard time. You have a hard time explaining morality, anchoring morality. Don't get me wrong. There, I think most atheists would agree that certain things are right and wrong, you know, to torture uh, children, to torture an innocent person is wrong. But then the question is, how do you anchor it? What's your justification for it? I I think there are roadblocks you run into without God, morality, meaning, how can we have any meaning if the universe doesn't have an objective basis to it, and then reason i mean we've been talking a long time about what cs lewis called the argument from reason where does reason come from how can a brain that evolved purely naturalistically that is accidentally how can my mind guarantee that it that it thinks reasonably how can how can i have how can i know that my my brain and my mind guides me toward truth well, that those are those are very difficult. Those are very difficult subjects. And of course, you have you have secular people who say, "Well, look, um, you know, maybe the reason you believe in God, Lawrence Krauss, Michael Shermer, the reason you believe in God, the reason you believe in life after death, the reason you believe in objective morality, it's because those things gave you survival advantages." But they're not true. And, that, and I stop and say they're not true well then it did evo- how can I trust my mind that ev- an evolutionary mind will give me truth at all how can I even know that evolution is true so you're back to that big challenge right As cs lewis says suppose you had a you know you had a gallon of milk and you spilt some on the you know on the t- on the table there would the spill of the milk correspond exactly to a blueprint of the city of london uh that's what that's what lewis is getting at how can i trust that something accidentally spilt is go- going to correspond to the nature of reality now one last focus here um, let's talk a little bit about jesus um the initial verse of the prolong of John's gospel, John 1.1, 1, 1, it says, in the beginning was the word. And here is that reformed philosopher, Gordon Clark, he suggests that John 1.1 1, 1 ought to be translated, in the beginning was logic. That, that Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is the thought of God. Jesus is the speech of God. The, everything that that God is, we see in Jesus. And, you know, I come back to a, a topic we've discussed before recently. Um, you know, I've, I've never been uh, a big reader of fiction. I've never been a big reader of fantasy, of, uh, you know, science fiction. I've learned to appreciate it. I've learned how valuable it can be, and that I've had to broaden my my reading. I I love history. I love, you know, to me, a movie is fun and exciting when they say it's based upon a true story. Wow, it's really true, you know. Um, But the point I want to make here is, you know, as a Christian, you believe God took a human form and became man. I, th- I think the truth of historic Christianity is greater than any fictional claim that God became a man. Not, not just that God exists, not just that God exists because we can point to morality and we can point to rationality. No, God became a man. He took a human nature. Um, t- to me, that's just mind-bog- bo- it's mind-boggling, and I believe it happened. And that belief kind of sets me apart from other worldview systems. But, but again, in the beginning was logic. In the beginning was Jesus is the speech of God. Jesus is the thought of God. If you've, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father, we are one. For Jesus to say, before Abraham came into being, I am. I am the I am of the burning bush of Moses. So, Christianity has a a deep sense, guys, that logic, reason, and logic, and argumentation, they're sacred because they flow from God. Just like morality is sacred, being faithful to your spouse not lying, not stealing, because those things go back to the very nature of God, that logic and reason have their own sacredness, truth. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I think that's why Christians should should embrace these things, and that's why I think we should strive to live lives. That testify to people that we are deeply committed to the the sacredness of truth, goodness, and beauty because they flow from God. That's all I want to say uh, about those topics. I wonder, Dave and Joe, what you think? It's a great start.
0: Yeah, very good. Yeah,
1: Learned I just want lot. to say
0: I, I can't speak a word of English. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's right. Uh, You know, you know, it's interesting to me that philosophers spend their whole lives looking at, you know, one, one expression of a statement trying to argue that, you know, uh, that it's nonsense and uh, so philosophers don't get as don't get the good pay that the scientists get that's that's the big challenge. Oh, good stuff. Can, can you tease the next program for us. Yeah, what I want to do in the next program is, in light of this very exalted view of the laws of logic, you know, uh, again, going back to the idea that they're invisible, conceptual, universal, timeless, in light of that very exalted view that Plato and Aristotle had, and in light of the view that Christians have, that, that logic is the very thought of God, in the modern world, those ideas have been challenged. And I want to look at a number of challenges uh, in, our own, in our own time. Um, people have challenged the fundamental nature of the laws of logic. So we'll look at Buddhist logic, Eastern logic. We'll look at atheist logic. We'll look at postmodern logic. So some of the contemporary challenges is where we want to go next. All right. Good. Sounds
0: good. Uh, Thanks, Ken, for your thoughts. Uh, I sure appreciate them. I'm I'm sure our listeners do as well. And every once in a while, people contact you uh, via your Twitter account or other social media and let you know what effect that you have had on their lives, including book recommendations. Uh, This one came in recently. It says, I was on a business trip to Portland, Oregon, and stopped by Powell's, the largest used bookstore in the world at the time, and I think it still is, and got a copy on your recommendation, How to Read a Book by Mortimer Adler and Charles Van Doren. It it is a great book, indeed. A few years later, I got How to Speak, How to Listen, also a great book. Thanks for sharing those, Ken, from Ryan Melker. Of course, you've mentioned uh, Mortimer Adler on this uh, program, so uh, people are are listening and picking up those books. So I'm I'm. I'm so thankful for that. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Ryan. Uh, Let us know your comments and questions. You can reach Ken via his Twitter handle at RTB underscore K samples. And don't miss any episodes of Straight Thinking. Subscribe to the Reasons to Believe podcast uh, on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and you'll get an episode delivered to you each week. That's going to wrap it up. For Ken Samples and Dave Rogstad, this is Joe Aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Thanks for listening, and join us for the next edition of Straight Thank You.
2: Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at Reasons.org.